Hey everybody, Brad Stevens here, founder and CEO of Outsource Access. We help companies redefine how they scale with offshore affordable staff from the Philippines. Congrats to all fellow winners of the 2023 Real Leaders Impact Awards. We are proud to be among you. About 10 years ago, I woke up to a major growth problem in my last business. Cash was tight, staff was overwhelmed, and tasks were not getting done. Then I discovered the world of offshore virtual staff in the Philippines where English is their second language, so there is no communication or culture gap. I realized outsourcing wasn't just call centers, it was access to college-educated Filipinos to support sales, marketing, operations, customer service, bookkeeping, personal tasks, and more. And in fact, the first woman I hired in the Philippines at 23 is now an award-winning COO of our entire company. It inspired me to launch Outsource Access. One client and YPO member, Ali Jamal, shared their offshore virtual staff Edison automated processes and saved them over 50,000 per year in the first few weeks. It's about finally getting things done and staff focusing on higher value activities. We've grown by over 2,000% in just three and a half years and will double next year. To receive a complimentary outsourcing playbook customized for your industry and to connect with one of our team here at Outsource Access, just visit RedefineScale.com. That's RedefineScale.com or text the word SCALE to 770-954-8440. Two months after hiring my first staff, she sent me a picture of shoes she bought for low-income children because of the opportunity. And now we support thousands of families and the environment with United Nations SDG projects. I'm proud we've grown with impact. To learn more, visit RedefineScale.com. Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. Do it. Okay, here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and joining us today, folks, we've got a good one. We've got Alan Adler, the managing partner of Digital Bridge Partners. Alan, thanks for being with us today, my friend. Hey, hey Kevin, great to be here. Can't wait. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, so Alan, we're going to talk a lot about today about how to grow ecosystems, how to build bridges, ways we can partner, and a new way to maybe look at growth. But before we get into all that good stuff, Alan, let's talk a little bit about what got you here? Why you see business a little bit differently than traditional folks? What resonates yeah. with you when I ask you that question? Well, having been a, in a te- I've been a technologist for 30 years, and most of that time has been spent looking at how to help technology companies partner with other companies to go to market. And having been having been a you know canonical expert in that space, you know, I've been watching. Uh, how software companies, who mostly are clients or B2B software companies, have operated for you know years and years. And unfortunately, they they follow this pretty much the same playbook. You know, it's like it's all about like, you know, our investors gave us a bunch of money. Now we want to become really successful so we can be rich and retire and be super successful, you know, playing golf or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, their their hearts were really guided mostly by their wallets as opposed to by their inspiration or by their desire to, to make a difference. And so over the last couple of years, I've discovered, I've discovered that this ecosystem thing that we've been all about 
is really not only the opportunity to unlock great growth and, and monetization, which is what many of the investors want, but also a way to contribute and make a difference. And so having found that pairing of something that actually makes money, but actually has the potential to transform business for good, uh, is really what inspired me to kind of like, you know, start this movement of go to ecosystem or go to eco, which is really all about helping uh, companies to reimagine uh, how to unlock the potential of, of ecosystems. We can talk more about what that fancy word means, but it's uh, it's my personal passion. I love that. Now, Alan, if we had like a like a table chart of a side by side comparison, typical SaaS startup scale up, bring it in. We're gonna be unprofitable to the day we die, but we're man, we are we are going to grow this company to kind of how you were you were envisioning a company should go about growth. Yeah, well, there are uh, there are two terms that define, uh, for lack of a better word, the go to market for most software companies, and those are inbound and outbound. So outbound, which is the the most traditional way, is you know if you want to run a company, you make a product, you hire business development people, you hire AEs and system engineers, and you start running a funnel where you do as much outbound as you can, create marketing qualified leads, these lead to sales qualified leads, and then you close one business and that's good. So uh, HubSpot among others introduced this whole new concept called inbound. And what inbound is really all about is adding value. What a concept, right? Adding value at the front end to get people to come to you, to walk toward you rather than you knocking on the door, they knock on your door, which is always better, right? It's always better. Why, why for example, does real leaders have uh, podcasts. It's because you're trying to create thought leadership and ideas in the marketplace, which will get, then get people to come to you. And that's the essence of in, about that's the essence of inbound, trying to generate that that motion. But now this new concept of ecosystem is all about this idea of nearbound, which means in addition to outbound, which is pound on the doors and get people to call you, and inbound, which is throw good ideas out there and get them to to reach out to you, is this idea of going to partners who are already close to near your customers and getting them to invite you into their sales cycles and into their customer success environments. So the notion of nearbound is wouldn't it be a lot more efficient if you want to get into a into the into a bar to have someone else introduce you to the pretty girl rather than you waiting and making stupid jokes and trying to bug her. Uh, get someone she already trusts to make an introduction of you. That's nearbound. So that's really what this, if I put a the old traditional inbound outbound, if you sit now add nearbound, you get a whole new set of economic opportunities, which unlock potential for much faster and more sustainable growth. And quite frankly, a, a more ethical and humane way of doing business. We can talk more about why that's true. I want to talk about a few of the examples of nearbound. For us, I, I think of conference partners. You know, a lot of our members might be circling around there. They have email lists, things that they could, you know, introduce us to, things like that. I could also think about uh, I get a free Spotify subscription when I sign up with uh, AT&T, you know, something like that, where maybe some members might come in for me as Spotify. What are a few examples, Alan, that resonate, that come to mind when you think of nearbound? Well, the first thing the first thing that comes to mind is uh, in tech in the software industry where we focus. It's most common that your solution is not a whole pizza for a customer. If if we may use the pizza metaphor, right? If a customer wants a whole pizza. You're at best a slice, 
What you want to do with Nearbound is to find the other slices that are really close to you and close to the customer. It's kind of like that proximity of close to you uh, because you've got an integration with them. Your slice talks to their slice and that your customer sees as the whole pizza. So, you know, mm. okay, so an example might be in like the e-commerce space. You know, if you if you're if you're a Shopify um, merchant, right? you're going to buy some tech stack stuff. You're going to buy something from a Clavio, which is going to give you like messaging. And you might buy, you might buy some uh, uh, inbound, inbound, um, inbound chat, like from a gorgeous. And, and these different capabilities are the pizza. So the merchant is looking out and saying, who, who makes the pizza? And then if you're, a, if you're a slice, you sure as heck better be finding your connection to the other slices. Otherwise, you're not going to be relevant to that customer. So that's really what nearbound is all about is Who's around you? Who do you partner with? How together do you create a whole pizza so the customer experience improves? Because at the end of the day, it's all about improving the end customer experience and how you get to that in such a way that you can grow, but also support your partners. And the whole pizza is healthy as opposed to just your slice. And, and Alan, help me understand, um, you know, if I'm a tech company and I've already got inbound, I've got outbound, and I'm using both of these. And and maybe I have like something called Mac or I'll have something called Channel, which is kind of focused on those channel partnerships. How do I go about incorporating this? And, and to you, do you see this as being like the bulk of new business that will come in because they're so close, they're so near? Yeah, well, it'll either be the bulk of new business or the most efficient way to grow. Because the problem with the inbound and outbound thing is it's not efficient anymore. And the reason it's not efficient anymore is because over the last 10 plus years, you've seen a massive growth in the number of software companies. So what used to work, which was pounding on the pavement and throwing out thought leadership is now uh, happening in a sea of others doing exactly the same thing. So like, you know, if everyone's doing the same thing, the customer's just getting bombarded. Now the average business customer who opens up their laptop or pulls up their iPhone is seeing thousands and thousands of impressions. How do you make sense of all that, right? The way you make sense of it is you, you go in through a filter and the filter is the nearbound partner because the filter will tell the customer to talk to their trusted partner and say, hey, is Kevin's software any good? So at the end of the day, the, 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 the first takeaway is that if you want to grow efficiently, you better do it in a way that matches your customer's needs and that isn't just you know, copying the same playbook that everybody else has copied, which is essentially what is broken right now in the whole go-to-market model and in B2B SaaS, at least. It's true in other industries, true, but happening more in this industry than, than others. I, I want to expand this a little bit more because like what goes into my mind is, gosh, there's some great partners out there that we love to tap into. But Alan, I, I almost don't want to come off as a competitor because that pizza is what I'm trying to get a little bit more of. And they kind of have that aspect. And I'm thinking about maybe providing a similar service myself versus going with them. What should one consider before reaching out to a potential nearby partner? Well, the first thing you have to do is, is have a product leader who understands the concept of an inverted firm. So in, in strategic parlance, there's this concept of the inverted firm. And it basically means that if you look at the darling companies, um, principally in the B2C space, you know, the, the Ubers and the Airbnbs, they've inverted the firm. They don't own any cars. They don't own any hotels. They basically built their companies by 
having other people provide a lot of the assets. This inverted firm has tremendous value. It's, it they typically grow twice as fast. They typically have half as many employees. They typically have twice the valuation, twice the profitability. Why? Because it's a better way to run a business. Right. right. If I can run a business by getting other people to bring the the assets, then how much better is that for me? In a way, you do a little bit of that, right? Right now, you're having me on your podcast. So how much did it cost you for me to bring my ideas to you? Zero. Mm -hmm. We exchange value, but at the end of the day, you're taking other people's assets and you're monetizing them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a conceptual model that says we no longer go to market alone. We no longer think about the products we make as being the, the, the sole arbiter of value. We recognize that we are a part of a larger ecosystem and that by building our products with an intention for openness, with an intention for expansion through an ecosystem, we're going to get that inverted firm concept and that's going to lead to some of those outcomes that I mentioned, which are a lot better than the boring old way that most companies go to market. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, Alan, for the CEOs and the, and the people who just need some financial structure out there listening to this, I like the Airbnb model. Maybe we just kind of go on that um, low overhead, right? Their assets are kind of just, you know, they're leveraging other assets. How do we, how do you look at like a, a performa P&L cost structure for how these, I guess, how to, how to look at that cost structure and see where you can be more efficient with this strategy? Yeah. Well, I think you, you could take it in any company and you could say it's composed of a product department, marketing department, a sales department, a customer success department. I mean, there's more, but those are the typically the, the important ones. Everything else is kind of support, right? Finance, legal, infrastructure, what have you. And you could say, okay, every single one of those is going to have assets, expenses, and revenue. So the question is, if I start with a premise that the most successful firms are inverting, then I want to look at each of my relative departments in the context of what could I get if I was go to eco instead of go to market. So from a product perspective, right? If I build uh, for the market uh, a solution that lets other people build on top of me, then I will likely have a much higher return on investment on my assets because now instead of just the return being a function of the multiples of my product, I now get the multiples of everybody else. So the example of the Airbnb would be if I build a platform to get customers who own homes to put their homes on, I get the return on investment from an asset I have zero investment in. I, I don't own those houses, but every time someone rents that house, I get, a, I get to take a piece. So the rev share is that I get a high return on investment by having someone else bring their house. In the software industry, that's having someone else bring their software. And then what I've done is I've built that integration layer or that platform layer to get other people to build on top of. So that's from a product perspective that the P&L just looks way better. In this case, the balance sheet. But then the P&L from a revenue, from a marketing, sales, and customer success, which is, which is typically revenue and expense, you get much higher revenue because typically any of these, let's say, partner-led motions have 70% higher conversion rates, which means your top of funnel is much better. They have... 30% uh, higher annual contract value, which means that your return on sales divided by cost, right, is higher. You have a higher E2B um, booking to this expense. And typically they 
close in half the time, which means that they're more efficient. So your cost of sales go down. So across all of the whole marketing funnel, from top of funnel to bottom of funnel, you see higher revenue, lower cost. So you got your balance sheet benefits and you got your income statement benefits. So it's like any CEO that doesn't figure this out, just not paying attention or is listening to his eyes, is, is listening to his venture capitalist who isn't paying attention. One way I'm interpreting a lot of this, Alan, is thinking about Airbnb as the example you point out and said, why would I, as a homeowner, put my asset on a company I've never met before? And the thinking there is, well, Airbnb is an established brand. Yeah. And they have so much traffic that they're going to be able to increase my booking times and they provide me technology to do that. Yeah. So in a sense, it's a great form of also marketing. You need to grow your brand. You need to have lots of traffic to your platform. Is is that, I guess, with that in mind, how, how does a company go about doing that, establishing that brand? What makes a good company a good brand, I guess? Well, I mean, before you get a brand, you have to have an offering. And in order to figure out the offering, you got to there's some mechanics to these platform models which are important like if you have for example uh solve for the cold start problem which is the biggest challenge in these platform business models and basically what that means is that let's say you have houses in, in san diego but nobody who wants to rent them what's the what's the homeowner's experience going to be when they put their house on your platform and they don't see the renters terrible or correspondingly if you've got the renters but you don't have the houses that's called the cold start problem, which basically means that in any uh, quote unquote atomic network, which the name of the book cold start problem is written by a guy from a 16 Z Andreessen Horowitz. I've read it. Uh, yeah. Jen, <laughs> he talks about these, like they're very micro little, little networks, right? In San Diego, you got to have houses and people renting houses. So there's a unique aspect to the creation of these offerings and these, in these ecosystem models, which means that before you can even say, I have a good brand, you have to have a good offer. And so a lot of the work that goes on in these companies to get this right is to figure out how to create that traction inside those atomic networks to kind of produce that activity. And then once you've got LA or San Diego lit up, it's going to be a whole lot easier to go to Los Angeles and then to San Francisco and then eventually got California and so forth and so on. And then your brand usually comes out of the demonstration of supreme levels of value creation which are unique to the characteristics of these platform business models. That's why they work. It's because someone's figured out how to solve a problem. The last mile problem that, that is technology at its best. This is technology at its best, you know, where you can automatically think, wow, how cool would it be if we could? And then someone creates a product. And then that product becomes foundational to um, many sides of the market. People that want to rent homes, people that have homes. People that want to organize vacations, this is a product extension on Airbnb right now. You can go and you can say, I want to have a great time in San Diego. So let me get tour operators who are in a similar atomic network mode. Uh, but anyway, this is just a B to B, B to C example. Same thing's happening in B to C, in B to B, which is where we focus. I, I like that thinking as well, Alan. I, I want to continue to riff on what you were just saying, if I may. Sure. And if I recall on that book, you know, one of the biggest challenges for these companies, start the cold startup, is that entrepreneur really has to go out 
and work hard to get those the, the toughest part of the network on there. So for Uber, it's drivers, right? You don't have as many drivers, the prices are going to be jacked up. If you yep. get more drivers, the price is lower. Just simple economics. Yeah. Yep. So where do you come in uh, with with an entrepreneur? Are you working to get that entrepreneur to build up that network at first, or do you come in to say, okay, you built a good brand, a good market, a good solution. Now here's mm. how to go nearby. Well, to give an example, like I was in Amsterdam and um, I'm on the board of a company. It's also a client of ours who's, who's got this kind of problem. Mm. Um, and so where we come in to help, for example, is to help them identify which markets to solve the cold start problem in. And in, in the B2B space, that there are these unique markets that are a function of, it's not as easy as in B2C where you've got like houses and renters. In B2B, you have all these niche ecosystems, like these special, uh, it's different in like the e-commerce space than it is in sales tech, than it is in martech, than it is in so forth and so on. And each one of these ones, we have to figure out, okay, like what's that unique formula that's going to result in the right hard side, subsidized side market you know to come about because at the end of the day it's like you got to find the for example um helping them to find out who's the like typically in these markets they'll be like a whale like if you can find the whale in the in the sea the little all the all the other fish swim to the whale so if you can design a programmer on the whale that's a two-sided market because all the other sides are little fish that want access to the whale or mm. tuna or using the metaphor of like, what is the sun and what are the planets? You can get the sun to programmatize around your offering, then all the planets will sort of orbit around the sun. Mm -hmm. So there's all these unique characteristics of these markets where we help to diagnose and figure out like what the right formula is. That's one of the things we do. We do other things beyond that, that strategy side, but there's a whole bunch of different mechanics to kind of figuring out how to put these things together that are fairly fairly sophisticated level of insight that's required to figure out what the right answer is. And something like that, that takes a long time, in my experience, I guess, takes a long time to understand if it's working or not. Like, how, how do I understand as an entrepreneur, I'm like, I'm going in the right direction. Like, I'm on the right path. Like, your, your recommendations. Well, if, if, we're, if we're talking about platform businesses like Airbnb applied to B2B, you know, it's typically a matter of like, you've got to find product market fit. That's the, you know, canonical term that's used to describe a startup that wants to be a scale up and wants to get series A funding. Funding They've, they've got to demonstrate that they've solved for the product market requirements. So in the case of these platform business models, typically the product market fit is an atomic network, is some small number of, of demand and supply sides they want to come together. And so it's really a matter of like, you, you say, where will I prove this? Where will I prove that I have a solution? So it's really that a matter of like iterating until you've kind of got the magic. And so one of the things that's really beautiful about these models is that once the magic is in place, you don't have to wonder about whether it's working or not. You start getting lots and lots of inbound requests to join the program because people see the interactions are happening. They say, I don't want to, I got FOMO. I don't get left out of that. I want to get in. Hmm. But the challenge is that getting that, getting that, getting that flywheel uh, established, that's the hard part. And usually it requires uh, unusual acts of courage and, and sustained commitment 
uh, and willingness to fail a lot until you get it right. And so that's the, that's, you know, that's what makes, that's what makes it fun too, by that matter, because you're like, you know, good things don't come just by guessing they come from a lot of trial and error and figuring out what works. That thousand percent. Absolutely. And, and Alan, just out of curiosity, like how do you define flywheel? Do you define it like a Jim Collins or do you define it more of like, it's just this continuous referral generator? Yeah. Percent? So a, a flywheel in a, in a, in a business model context, I refer to as when, when uh, it, it's, it's associated with what are affectionately called network effects. So it's like, if you think about it from a, a simple example of like, like Slack, which is also talked about in that same book, right? You need to have a certain number of people posting Slack messages and responding to them. And once you reach a certain, a tipping point, that's when the cold start problem is solved. You start to see lots of activity, people coming to the network because of the activity that's going on there. So that's the flywheel is when, when adding one more of something results in adding more of those, but also adding the other side. So when you add one more people making messages, you have one, you add multiple people reading the message. When you add one more house on the network, you get that many more buyers. When you add more buyers, you get more houses. So it's usually this, this reciprocal relationship between the supply and demand inside of the marketplace. That's, that's what a flywheel is. And you can apply it to many concepts, but the notion is it's not a linear one-to-one, -one, like a stovepipe was the old term that used to, got replaced by the flywheel. So it's this idea that, you know, if you move it a little bit, you get a lot of, you get a lot of motion, a little bit of resource investment, a lot of uh, return on investment. And another good example of uh, failure leading to a new creation, right? Slack right. was originally used for the video game and then now to, oh, wait, it's right in front of us the whole time. And that's what I want to talk about next, Alan, is blind spots. Yeah. And when you're working with founders who you're on the outside, they're inside the bottle and the labels on the outside, you read them like a book. What are some of the takeaways? And, and I guess, where do you find entrepreneurs in your realm uh, stumble or struggle with the most? Um, I want to make sure I understand your question. So are you saying uh, that the founder wants to, or the entrepreneur wants to get inside the tent? What are they struggling with the most to get inside the tent? Is that what you're getting to, or is it? I think most people have a difficulty working on their business because they're in it. Uh, I see. Yeah, that's legit. That's legit. I mean, this is back to the product market fit conversation. Like we typically don't work with, with a lot of founders. We typically work with companies that are a little bit, a little bit more mature than founders, but regardless of whatever it is that there's the, there's the time to experiment to get the right formula where your focus is entirely on effectiveness. You don't worry about being efficient. You worry about being effective. Does what we are offering really work? It doesn't matter whether the economics are proper. It matters whether or not the offering is working in the market. Once you've achieved offering validate validation as in product market fit, then you move from being about efficiency to being about effectiveness. Because at that point, you've proven that a dollar in is going to yield a dollar out. Now what you want to do is lower the cost to get the dollar in or reduce the dollar in so that you can get a lot of dollar out. At the beginning, you have to spend a lot more. There's no, there's no efficiency in product market fit only effectiveness. 
So really, that's the that's the real challenge. People working in their business, I would argue that until you have product market fit, everybody's everyone's working in the business. Mm. And once you get product market fit and you've proven that you've got a formula that works, then you can start to work on the business and start leading other people to do the different things that are necessary. But in the beginning, you sure as have better be able to do it yourself, right? Because if you can't, if you can't put that together, you probably don't know what you're doing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's why really great leaders typically are the ones who can do the job. Therefore, they can they can lead others to do the job because they know what the job is. Like I got to know what the job is if I'm going to lead somebody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's my experience. And just out of curiosity, like it seems like you got to get the the product market fit. Once you have that, then it's kind of about the economics from there. Is that to you when you like? Here's when we need to start investing. Here's when we need to start rapidly rolling this out and scaling. I guess just the general question is, what does scale mean to you? How do you define it? And yeah, how can one yeah. go about it? That's a great question. I mean, I think the I think the, uh, the 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 real big challenge in at least in the ecosystem space and in this nearbound idea that that we're talking about is that the uh, you could apply product market fit to a program. Let's say, for example, okay, we we want to make sure that we can get our ecosystem partners to participate with us in a go-to-market, which we call go-to-eco. You have to programatize that, right? Because at some point in time, you can't just have all these random acts. You've got to actually say there's a repeatable motion here. And so you look at the difference between validating that you've got a successful offering and scaling it, which is where the program lies. And so like a lot of our clients struggle with how to programatize this quite complex process of working multiple slices of a pizza. I mean, if you really think about uh, why partnerships and why nearbound is really hard, it's because it requires a movement from scarcity and closed system mindset to abundance and open system mindset. And that is a big lift for many leaders because becoming an a leader of a system that you don't control, becoming a influencer of an environment where you are just one voice takes a lot of trust and courage because what you want to do is you want to say, no, lock it down and control it, command and control that whole sort of like traditional way that companies have operated. It's not working anymore. It's one of the reasons why real leaders, I think, has a business is because people are waking up, whether they be the consumer, the entrepreneur, the employee, they're waking up and they're saying, this toxic workplace economic model is just broken. We're destroying the planet. We're creating toxic environments. People are being abused. There's exploitation. And the beautiful thing about ecosystems, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, is like we found something that actually works and does good, not works and exploits or does good and makes no money. It has to work and be good. And that's the biggest pitfall for leaders, CEOs, is to recognize that in inverting the firm, you got to go from closed system scarcity mindset to open system abundant mindset. That's that's it. I love that's that. I, right I, there. I love how you're you're thinking on this, Alan. And and obviously the thinking comes from experience that you've had in your career. 
I'm I'm curious to learn like how your leadership has evolved over time. Um, when this switch of maybe a pull strategy versus a push strategy or empowering others really resonated with you, mm. any anything that resonates with you would be helpful. Yeah, I would say the 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 big thing for me was uh, realizing that I was living uh, I was living uh, a scarcity fear oriented life and leading from a place of scarcity and fear orientation and um, realizing that I was just like everybody else leading the planet to uh, an uncorrectable uh, disaster and recognizing that though retirement might be in the, in the offing because I'm a relatively old guy so especially in technology that I had something to offer uh, with respect to a new vision for how to run a business, especially a technology company, in a way that is completely foreign to the way most companies operate, completely foreign to the point of being radical. And, and then trying to figure out how to make that radicality digestible, how to, how to actually first have a vision that I could articulate that is a, a just cause, and then how to turn that just cause into something that my team would resonate with and then how to operate our business in a way that's an example and then how to use that example as a way to transform business and this journey is just beginning so i wouldn't say i've got that figured out maybe a couple of years from now we should do another podcast see how well it worked but that's at least the vision is 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 doing those things that i just mentioned and in in your experience you know what is the role of a leader within the company and it may, may change, it may evolve, but what it, what is the role of a leader? And I'm not inferring that the leader is always the person at the top, um, yeah. but just how do you think about leadership within the company and its role? Yeah. I think the first role of leadership is to have, have a compelling vision for why they exist. I think that is the first and most important job because if you do not know why you exist and that that vision is grounded in some just cause as simon sinek talks about in infinite games something that is legitimate and compelling that could actually be a legacy once you're no longer leading i think that's the most important job of a leader is to establish and promulgate a compelling vision for why that company exists. And then promulgating it means it's one thing to say it. And then it's the question of, can we live it? Hmm. Which is the next job of the leader. It's like, first you come with a compelling vision, then the next job is to figure out whether or not you can live that vision in everything you do. Hmm. So that's what I would say the definition of a real leader is somebody who can come up with a compelling vision and then figure out how to live that vision. Hmm. Everything else, I think, as they say is, is uh, context. That's core. Those are the cores. Of course, someone's going to say, oh, wait a minute. Now, how come that? What about making money? What about having a legitimate offering? Yes, you have to do that. Like, and I think one of the things that, you know, in listening to uh, your conference that you did with your great speakers, you know, one of the things that was a resonant with me was you have to have a product that actually works or a service that actually adds value. Because if you don't, 
then as much as you may have a great vision and you may have your people following that great vision, it won't have any impact in the market. So then that becomes the third job of a great leader after he's built, he or she's built the vision, promulgated it through the organization, is then making sure that the offerings resonate with the market in such a way that you can truly deliver that vision in reality. Because if you can't do that, then again, you've got some great, you know, fancy, fancified, fanciful, you know, uh, inspiring just cause, but you don't have the way to turn it into something meaningful in the marketplace. So after that, you know, we could add things, but at that point it becomes more or less just, you know, rinse and repeat. Beautifully put. Well, Mr. Adler, I've, I've really enjoyed this, this conversation today. In all of this, what is your definition of a real leader? I think, I think we just kind of nailed it. Coming up with a vision, promulgating it through the organization and then building services and offerings that allow that to come to market in the in the marketplace and have an impact. For Alan Adler, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, promulgate a vision, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure. Hey, Releaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to Releaders.com today, you're gonna get the first 30 days for free where you're gonna be able to access all of our magazines courses and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.